This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain, which takes us to the most difficult assignment a reporter can get and the only one they truly dread, interviewing a grief-stricken family member. An explosion in the middle of the night sends a ball of fire high in the air. Like a big bomb. On June 11th, an aggressive fire would tear through an apartment building early in the morning as residents ran for their lives. He jumped out from the window, landed on the trampoline and ran out. It was all just so traumatic. Like, I, I still can't get the image out of my head. 14-year-old Sohail Kushkai Delshad barely escaped the fire that ripped through his North Vancouver apartment building early Monday morning. I woke up in my... my dad was yelling fire and he was in the living room so I got up and I see the fire coming through our front door and in the hallway. Reporter Shannon Patterson had the difficult task of speaking with a survivor of that fire hours after he lost his mom and brother to the flames. And I took my brother and tried to get him out but then he whipped his head back and I fell down and uh, I all I saw was smoke and I felt around to see if they were there. I couldn't hear them and uh, I thought I'd die so I just jumped out and I landed on that trampoline so nothing happened to me but I don't know they didn't jump. I'm going to bring in reporter Shannon Patterson now and Shannon this is one of those rare occasions where this teenage boy wanted to talk he wanted to tell his story. He did. Um, The first day I covered the story of this tragic fire uh, in Lynn Valley which is actually my neighborhood I live in Lynn Valley in North Vancouver I was told about the tragedy of this young boy who died along with his mother And I was told that um, the boy's 14-year-old brother had tried to save them, that he was in the burning bedroom with the mother and the younger brother, and he put his brother up on the windowsill and wanted him to jump, but his brother was too scared. And in the end, he lost sight of them, and he jumped. He saved his own life, but wasn't able to save his mother and his brother. So the next day, on day two, I went to the townhouse again. Uh, Wasn't sure what the follow-up would be, but I knew there would be one. And I saw a young boy with two grown-up women approach the the fence that was surrounding the fire, and he was quite emotional. So I knew that he was affected in some way, but I didn't know who he was originally. So I told my cameraman, hang back, and I would go chat with them. Uh, They were chatting with someone I'd met the day before, and that was easier for me to walk up to them because I knew this gentleman from the day before, and he introduced me. I learned that this was Sohail. Sohail was that 14-year-old boy who had been in that bedroom who lost his mother and his younger brother. I, I have to say, when you, when you know you're speaking to someone who's gone through that level of tragedy, your heart sinks a little bit. And I kind of gulped a little bit and said to myself, okay, you know, this is, this is this boy who's gone through an unimaginable tragedy less than 36 hours before, and he's come back to the scene of the tragedy. And so I just asked him how he's doing. Um... And he talked a little bit about how he, his father was in hospital and he had been visiting his father in hospital who was badly burned in the fire. And he talked about how he was a little upset that there had been some things in the media reported that were inaccurate, specifically his age and the age of his younger brother. Thankfully, I did not report those facts inaccurately. I had the accurate facts the day before, but I guess other media did. And I asked him, do, do you want to tell your story? Um, do you want to make sure the correct story is out there? And at that moment, I made sure that the two adults were with him because I didn't want to look like I was pushing this child. And he said he did. He said he did want to tell his story. So at that moment, I motioned for my camera to come over. And I, you know, we, we started an inter- interview that was 
possibly the hardest interview of my career because he's 14 and he's in so much pain and the emotion is so raw as he recounted a horrific fire that woke him in the middle of the night uh, and his guilt at not being able to save his little brother and his mother. He was in tears. He was shaking. Um, I'll be honest, so was I. Uh, It was really hard to hear. So Hale is the same age as my daughter and actually goes to her school. So when I saw Sohail, I saw my daughter. And I saw my daughter if she had just lost me and her little brother. And it was really hard, Penny, not to just reach out and, and comfort this child. It's You're stuck in that moment between I'm a mom watching a suffering child and I'm a reporter telling a story. And again, I reiterate, he wanted to, to tell the story. So I talked with him through what happened. I asked him a question about his mom and his little brother. And um, the fact his mom never tried to jump. And I said, is that because she wouldn't leave your little brother? And what he said was so heartbreaking, uh, so difficult to hear. We'll play it for you now, but it it really broke my heart. My brother really likes her. And uh, if one of them lived and the other didn't, I don't think they could could live normally. I don't think they they could bear with the pain. Because my mom loved my brother so much. She loved all of us. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I'm glad at least they, they died together because I don't think they could have lived without each other. That moment for me in that interview uh, was overwhelmingly emotional to hear this child talk about that his his mother and brother were together still, wherever they are now. Um, I ended the interview shortly after that, and I... Um, I got the camera to stop, and then I, I talked to Sohail some more. I tried to comfort him as best as I could. Um, I don't know him, you know, and he had family there, thank goodness. But I, in those moments, it's really hard to know what the line is as a journalist um, because we are objective observers of news. We're not the news we don't get involved in or interject ourselves into the news. But when you see that much pain and that much hurt, you just you, you have to reach out. You have to try your best. And I tried my best to, to comfort Sohail, knowing I can't. There's no words that I can say that can help him other than telling his story the best I can in a way that's respectful to him and his family. After that interview, I took a moment and I had to walk away and be by myself for about half an hour in my camera vehicle. And it was very emotional for me. It was very hard for me to sit down and write a script. Um, because the pain was so real and so raw and so right in your face. Um, you just feel this pressure to tell his story and, and tell it right. And I think you did it with the utmost sensitivity. And I, I've been there. I know how hard it is. But even as a viewer, because you had um, part of his interview on our noon show. It, so it was before the 6 o'clock news when you had time to really craft something. And you probably don't know this, but in the newsroom at the time, it was usually there's chatter and stuff going on and there was absolute silence listening to this poor, you can't even call him a young man, 14 years old, he's barely a teenager. And it was just so hard just as a human being to watch that interview and to listen. I I was just, after I got over, you know, the tears in my eyes, just like hearing that and seeing that my heart went out to you for for doing that because it is hard 
to be in that situation when you have so much empathy and compassion and you want to put that out there and, and take that to our viewers so they understand what it's like so that they can think, do you have an emergency plan? What would you do in a situation like this? That's the, that's the goal out of all of this. It's not, some people are really cynical out there and they think that we just want to land the interview. That's not what this is about. That's not what it's about at all. And sometimes it is about a message. Um, and sometimes it's just about letting people speak because it's cathartic for them. There are different reasons traumatized people speak to the media, and uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about how the media uh, approaches people who've been through grief or trauma or tragedy, um, that we um, would walk up to someone with a camera and just start asking them questions, which I assure everyone listening, that will never happen. I would never do that. That is not how we respond when we see someone who's emotional and overwhelmed. I would never, ever go up camera rolling, as we call it, to any of those people. There's varying reasons why they speak. Um, some people speak because they, there's a lesson to learn in the tragedy. There's a, a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. There's a hit and run. Um, the number of uh, hit and run accidents I've covered where people want to make an appeal. This was my loved one. This was my daughter. This was my wife. They're asking someone to come forward. They're asking someone to turn themselves in. In a drunk driving situation, they're pleading with people not to drive drunk. Um, in a murder situation, if the murderer is still out there, they hope by telling the story it stays in the public eye and therefore stays high priority for police. There are different reasons why people speak, but we always, always give them the option and the opportunity. What I tell myself when I know I'm assigned to a story that's going to involve pain like this is I'm offering them an opportunity to speak. I'm not going to push them. I'm not going to um, try to convince them. All I would have needed had Sohail's um, guardians who were there at the moment, he called them his aunties, I don't know if they really were, but they were two ladies who were there. If either of them had stepped in and said, I don't think he's ready for this, I would have immediately stepped back. Um, that's the issue, too, dealing with children. Um, 14 for us is kind of what we call the borderline about speaking to people without a parent involved, especially about sensitive topics. He came across so incredibly mature, uh, both you and I said, I can't believe this kid's 14. Like I, I thought he was in grade 12. I really did because he was so articulate and so it just blew me away. He's, um, he's in grade 8 at my daughter's school. And I just it really hit home to me. This is my community. Um, this could be any of us. And so I wanted to offer him the opportunity to speak. And that's, again, what we want to do when we come across a tragedy. And we've covered many. I've covered the hardest for me as a mom is people who lose children. Um, I've hugged many moms who've lost kids. Um, and again, it's hard, you know, you, you feel like you're not supposed to cross that journalistic line. I, I've crossed it. I'm sure you have too. How can you not? I had just a few weeks ago, actually, it was the widow of Dr. Alphonsus Huey. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple years ago, he was um, turning uh, left on a green light, hit by a, a driver who at the time of impact, they estimate, was doing 119 kilometers an hour in a 50. His widow had never done a TV interview, and we were there at her home with her daughter because the driver was acquitted. Um, it's it's not that it's it's complicated, but it's the the judge basically found that the driver it was a momentary um, burst of speed, and he could not find this person uh, guilty. So they were it reopened the trauma for them. They were very emotional, and they were upset about the verdict. And they'd had a big petition that they were doing, and they wanted people to sign to get the crown to appeal the um, the decision. And his widow was so lovely. And so she wanted to talk about her husband. She loved him so much. Mm -hmm. 
he had such a generous spirit. He did so much in the community and she was teary eyed at the decision, but also still at the loss. You could see that it was still really raw for her. And then at the end, when we were packing up to leave, she came up and she gave me a hug and Murray Titus, the cameraman, she gave us both hugs because she said, I really appreciate that you let me talk about my husband and let me tell my story and how much he did and what he meant to me. And it's just so humbling in the face of someone's grief when they reach out to you like that. How can you, you can't push that person away. You just can't. No, no, absolutely. Um, and that is, um, the first thing I ever ask because I've been asked before, how, how do you interview somebody who's lost someone? Most of the time, my first question is tell me about them mm-hmm. because in my private life where I've dealt with friends who've had uh, tragedy, really, really overwhelming tragedy in their life. What they've told me is um, people are afraid to talk to them about their, their dead loved one. Mm. They're afraid to say that person's name. Um, they'll tell themselves, I won't mention this child's name because it would hurt that person. The reality is it makes, it, that's not why. It's because it makes the person uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So you've got to break through that discomfort and you've got to know you're going to hear something hard. But what I learned uh, from friends who've lost loved ones is ask them about that person. Ask them to share their stories. Make sure you bring up their name. And so when we interview somebody who's lost a loved one, I always make sure to use, use that person's name. Uh, ask them to share their stories or the things that they want people to most remember. I asked Sohil if he had a favorite picture of his mom and brother because... In the age of social media, there's some pictures out there. You know, I'm sure you wouldn't want every picture that's on social media view out there. So I always ask them what their favorite pictures are because knowing that those photos would be on the news, I want to make sure that they have pictures that they that they remember and love of their loved ones. Uh, so I asked Sohail for a photo, um, and I was able to get a photo of his mom and his little brother who he loved so much. And it brings it home when you see the faces of these people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's important for us to give them an opportunity to speak if they want to. It's equally important for us to back away when they don't. You and I have both heard of lots of families say we request privacy and we always give it. We get a bad rap. We really do. And you know what frustrates me, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is the way the media is portrayed on movies, on TV, in books. We are portrayed like animals. That is not the reality. We never run after people who've lost a loved one shouting questions at them. That isn't how any of us operate. And anybody out there who's ever dealt with the media will know that. But at least in Vancouver, I got to say that we are, our colleagues out here, I think have a lot of sensitivity. I have heard of and seen stuff elsewhere that is questionable or people, you know, I think that are maybe fresh out of journalism school or something, and they don't have that humanity to them. Like you have to balance doing a job with your humanity. And at the end of the day, you have to do this job and be able to go home and sleep at night. And I think some people, maybe they have something to prove. Maybe they're scared that they're not going to have a job or whatever. It, it happens, but it's extremely rare. It is extremely rare that we see something like that. I don't know that I've ever actually seen anyone chasing after a grieving person. Usually it's a, it's a bad person that we're pursuing <laughs> some sort of bad person. So, but you're right in the, in, in movies and in TV shows and stuff, it seems that we are all just, you know, foaming at the mouth to get this grieving person. And really the reality is those are the things that we dread because we want to give them a voice and we don't want to come across as being vultures, but sometimes it can, I'm sure for them, it can feel that way. It's the hardest thing we do by far 
hands down is covering tragedy because we're all human. Uh, a lot, we all have families, uh, we have kids, we have parents, we have siblings and friends who we love, and we always put ourselves in the shoes of this person and the tragedy they've gone through. I want to bring in managing editor Ethan Faber because not only have you been on the front lines as a reporter facing these issues, but you are the person who approves every reporter's story before it goes to air. You've seen the looks on the reporters' faces when we've had to do interviews like that and then articulate it into a story. People handle that differently when they're face-to-face with grief, don't they? Well, yeah, they do. I mean, a good interview requires empathy, right? And a lot of people get into journalism because they want to give a voice to people who don't normally have a voice. So when you're suddenly in the role of giving a voice to someone who's going through something deeply traumatic, um, then you, you end up being affected by it. And so... Um, when I think about some of the difficult interviews I've done, and then I think about some of the difficult interviews other reporters have done, um, and how it affects us, um, yeah, it can be really, really damaging, actually. Um, a lot of reporters, I think, have, um, you know, you don't have to go to a war zone to have a, what I think is a form of PTSD. You can have it like an empathy PTSD. Uh, and we see that quite a bit. I mean, we actually offer through the company, we offer counseling services. Uh, and um, I know of uh, several situations where we've had our reporters uh, avail themselves of that uh, based on stories they've covered and some of the interviews they've done. It can, it can be very, very difficult um, to kind of carry that uh, weight. Um, and every reporter handles it differently. And a lot of people are going to be thinking at this point, well, why do it? Why, you know, put someone's grief on the air like that? Why put the reporters through that? But I remember going to a seminar by Al Tompkins years ago, who's a, an amazing storyteller, and it was called Aim for the Heart. And I remember him saying, you remember what you feel better than what you know. And it feels like we go through this so that the viewer can feel something for this story and, and take something with it that's more than just it's a house fire or shooting or anything else. Well, it can seem predatory uh, to speak to the bereaved on the air. And sometimes we do get a pretty strong reaction from viewers who uh, think that it looks ex- like we're exploiting people's grief. Um, but a lot of times we're actually approached uh, by the bereaved. Um, and it can be a real surprise, actually, because you don't know how each individual person is going to handle grief. And you think about, um, I know I do sometimes when I see someone uh, on the news uh, talking about something terrible that's happened to, to a family member, I think, well, I can't imagine myself doing that. I, I would be under the sheets with the curtains closed and I wouldn't be functional. And here's somebody the day after something terrible happens to a family member talking about it on the news. What the hell's going on there? And I, I don't know that anybody has the answer. It's just so individual and so unique. And so um, I can think about the very first time um, knocking on the door um, in Campbell River at the home of a woman whose son had just died that morning in a terrible uh, seaplane crash. Her son was a forestry worker and several people had died when this plane went down. And I was pretty much a cub reporter and I was there and um, I went to the door. You know, that's our job. I knocked on the door, but the camera's down. You know, the, mm-hmm. the camera's on the ground. The the, the, the camera operator uh, is standing there with me just as another journalist. So I remember the door opened and the mom said, I'm so glad to see you. 
I couldn't believe it. And she invited us in. And I'm like, are you sure? And she goes, yes, come in. And, and she had pictures set up of her son on the coffee table and, and the side tables. And she arranged them very carefully behind her. She even set up the shot herself. And she said she wanted to thank the community. Uh, because people were helping her family, offering to bring groceries and and any kind of support. And she thought, I think, that this was a really effective way to say thank you and to let everybody know um, that she was hanging in there. Uh, she was a spiritual person, too, so she, she wanted to share that perspective. And so I just kind of let her speak. So, you know, on the, on the news that night, people would have seen a grieving mom uh, and my I'd have thought, what the hell are you doing in her house? But the truth is, she invited us in and she had something to say. And it was a frightening experience for me to go into. But when I left, I was moved. I was moved by her strength. I was moved uh, by her courage. And I didn't feel dirty. Um, and it's just such an intimate experience for someone to share that with you. And I don't think I was really mature enough to truly comprehend what she was doing. I wasn't a parent yet. Uh, but when I look back at that, it still resonates with me as sort of a good example of how everybody grieves differently and, and how sometimes the journalist can play a role in the grieving process, a role that they, the, the grieving person actually seeks out where they want to they want to eulogize the person they've lost. They want to thank the community for the support that they're feeling. Uh, and you end up being sort of a conduit for that message that they want to get out there. It might be easier, maybe, I'm, I'm speculating, than returning every phone call. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess with social media, people have other ways of expressing grief now sometimes. So that's another place where we'll, we'll, we'll see people kind of speaking out and, and reaching out to the community. And sometimes we'll make an approach that way as well. But at the end of the day, it does resonate with the reporter and it I do think there is some collateral damage on reporters emotionally and so um, we have to be careful um, to give reporters who are doing interviews like that some time um, after they do those stories and sometimes we'll say don't come in tomorrow and spend the day with your family and, and kind of process this. Well and just the way that that experience obviously is going to stay with you for your lifetime I think that that story would have stuck with viewers for days, sometimes weeks. I think we all see stories because when you see that raw emotion, it breaks through all sorts of things because you don't see it that often. It's such a rare thing. Um, and it, it makes those stories unforgettable. And you do think about the tragic circumstances next time you are around a float plane or a house fire or anything else. It just sticks in your brain. Well, the role that the victim can play in um, personifying the issue mm -hmm. is huge. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's only through the emotion that I think the public will pay attention to the issue. So when I think of tragedies that have been, uh, based around systemic problems, like I think of Sherry Charlie, uh, the little first nations girl who was put into foster care in a, in a home with, um, a relative who had a history of domestic violence bad domestic violence and um she was put into his care and he ended up killing her um and i remember the first nations community didn't want sherry charlie's name publicized at all and we were told this is a private matter 
This is a community in grief. How dare you uh, ask questions about who died in the name of the child? This child was a toddler. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody stood up in the legislature, one of the MLAs, and said her name. And that was sort of our opening to begin to personify and humanize this tragedy. And I look back at that and I think the questions around foster care and the questions around decisions uh, of, of, of who children are, are put into the care of, those questions don't have very much meaning until they're asked on behalf of Sherry Charlie, the dead toddler killed um, as a result of a bad decision made by authorities. And so you need to you need to find the human issue uh, and the human face to to make I think sometimes the public sit up and, and pay attention and say something something went wrong here and we need to investigate it. So sometimes it is a means to an end and and you know exploring the grief and exploring the victims and and talking to families is sometimes the way I believe we're getting our viewers to sit up and pay attention to what might be a complex issue and it may be an esoteric issue until there's a human face behind it. Where do you go from here? What do you do? I'm, I'm glad you have your dad. Yeah, um, I have a lot of family here, and they, they're, they're as close to me as my mother was, so they're taking good care of me. Uh, I have a lot of families that love me, and I'm glad they're here. Yeah, the message I'd like to leave podcast listeners with is um, if... A family doesn't want to speak to us. We don't. We, we don't. It's, it's up to them. And people grieve in completely different ways. Some people want to tell the story over and over and over and over. And some people don't. And what we can do is offer them the opportunity to tell it in a public sphere. And sometimes there's a message, like I said, about drinking and driving, about uh, fire prevention, like you said, or... The uh, fentanyl crisis yes. has been a big one that a lot of families want to talk about because it's just this... Uh, this shame and this stigma, that's a big one that you'd be surprised how many people want to come forward and say, I never thought that it could happen to my child. It's prevention. Uh, I remember another one where I interviewed a father whose daughter committed suicide. That was another really hard one for me. Um, she was, I think, in her late teens when she took her own life. And it was on Bell Let's Talk Day. And um, he wanted to tell her story. Uh, and it was really, really hard uh, for me to hear he was very broken and very emotional. And, and I have a daughter and I, I put myself in his shoes and how hard he tried to save her life and how he advocated for her and how he got her help and he did everything right. And she tragically just, just took her own life. And so um, those stories are really hard for all of us. Uh, but it's important that he wanted to tell her story on Bell Let's Talk Day to try to get through to uh, other parents about talking to their kids, uh, other kids who are suffering so I tell myself when I'm, I'm put in a position like that, that go in there, offer the opportunity respectfully. If they're not interested, back away. Um, and sometimes people are interested at a later date, uh, not right away as well. So we'll try to follow up with people. Sometimes I've gotten a phone number from someone and tried again a week later and said, hey, you know, uh, would you like to share your son's story? And sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. But it's all about respect and doing it in a way that's respectful to them and their grief and their loved ones. Well, Shannon, I want you to thank you so much for being so um, open and forthcoming about something that is actually really difficult for journalists to talk about. It's really hard. This is 
it's always very hard on us uh, to do these interviews. And it's actually even harder to talk about it to the outside world because we are supposed to be arm's length and professional and all the rest of it. And of course we are, but that doesn't mean that stories like this don't affect us. They affect us deeply. And, um, you know, it's our privilege to tell the stories of, of all people, of all of our audience. And that includes stories of grief and tragedy. And so we try to do our jobs and do it the best we can. And I'm glad you uh, gave me the opportunity to share with your listeners how, how we cover this kind of story, because it's important. My thanks also to Ethan Faber and to Adam Lee for his support with Archival Audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daphos. Penny Daphos.